0: Today's text is about being saved. Some of you are like, stop right there, Kyle. You've already revealed to me that you're an uneducated bloke. The the backwoods preachers talk about being saved. We thought you would give us something a little more intellectually fulfilling. You lost me already, Kyle. I've, I've been trained to believe we are a cosmic accident riding on a larger cosmic accident... I'm an atheist." Well, I simply respond that the belief that no one is in charge of the universe is a fairly recent development, at least in the terms of any comprehensive sense. As Richard Dawkins said, it took Darwin to be an intellectually fulfilled atheist. The concept of being saved isn't backwoods, it's mind-blowing, it predates atheism. And our three pound fallen brains that went to public schools may struggle to grasp this. But there is not a deeper concept in the world than this subject. Now that's those of you that are atheists. On the other hand, others of you only have one category for the word saved. You're extremely intelligent. You have a BA and a master's and maybe even a PhD. But you hear me say saved and you think, yes, someone saved me from drowning in a pool. When I was seven. I was saved out of an abusive relationship. You're like the woman in Chicago who went up to a man who had a cross on a chain around his neck and asked, Why do you wear a plus sign around your neck? Church, we assume educated people know certain things about the Christian gospel. And they don't. You need to prepare for biblical cluelessness. D.A. Carson has quickly become one of my favorite theologians to read after. And he said, when you used to evangelize atheists, it used to be a particular kind of atheist. They were an atheist who who was denying the existence of a Christian God. The present day atheist is not necessarily angry at the Christian God. They don't even speak his language and they aren't familiar with any of his teachings. Uh, During this building project, I've spoken to a lot of contractors... And nearly every time I interrupt them and say, you're speaking over my head. I need this in layman's terms. And I like to tell our seminary students who are at Southern or wherever that they will preach their worst sermons while in seminary because they are used to speaking Christianese with people that carry their same dictionary. And they're engulfed in it all day and they forget that other people aren't familiar with their terms. And they need to go out and and ref a little league game or meet people at a local flea market, or evangelize those kids over there smoking e-cigs. I try to be Captain Obvious when I preach and explain words like saved from my dictionary. Now that's why these two groups need the text, the non-Christian atheist and then the non-Christian unfamiliar. But there's a third group that needs this text, and that's the non-Christian deceived. Some of you think you're a Christian, but you're not. You live in a house of distorted mirrors, you never see yourself clearly. The Puritan said a profession of faith must be tested before it can be trusted. A profession of faith does not mean a possession of faith. I mean, how many of you know someone who claimed to be a Christian, but time and fruit revealed that they were not? As one senior citizen told me recently, just because someone is in the sheep pen doesn't make them a sheep. Lots of people make a profession of faith. The publisher of Hustler Magazine did. Jeff Gordon did. Elvis Presley did. Kanye did. All I'm saying is that a profession of faith doesn't guarantee a possession. You say, Kyle, why in the world are you saying this before you even touch the text? Because whenever I hear preaching, the first question I want answered is, why do I need this text? So I've told the non-Christian atheists why they need it. The non-Christian unfamiliar why they need it. The non-Christian deceived why they need it. Now the Christians. Some of you have grown cold in your salvation. The gospel doesn't stun you as it once did. And Paul is in this text saying that I may know Christ. J.L. Packer put it well. Once you become aware that your main business here in life is to know Christ, then most of life's problems fall into place. All of life flows from this fountain knowing Christ. Paul's a senior citizen, and he's still pursuing hard after Christ. He's hungry for more. He never lost the wonder of it all. His heart is still white hot for Christ. Salvation made him hot, not cold. I can't wait to open the scriptures. I can't wait to commune with my God. Salvation still knocks me off my feet in gladness. Can you say that? Do you find yourself growing cold? If so, you need gospel heat. And it's here. Here's what I have for you today three movements with application weave throughout. Three movements. Movement number one. I want to keep you safe from those who distort salvation. This is what Paul is saying in these two verses, and this is what I am saying in these two services. Notice verse 1. Let's read at length here. Verse 1. Finally, actually let's just stop there. This is kind of funny here. Paul says finally, but he's not even close to being done. He's only halfway through the message. He's halfway through the book. It's such a preacher thing to say. Ken Hughes told a story about a little boy who whispered to his father in church. Hey, Daddy. What what does the pastor mean when he says, finally? To which the father responded, absolutely nothing, son. (laughs) I didn't think it was funny either. In fact, this is proof that um, when I do it, I'm following an apostolic precedent. Now... I could go to town on the next phrase in the verse, rejoice in the Lord. And I could say things like, learn to rejoice while being terminally ill. Learn to rejoice like Paul when being jailed. But that is not the point. He's using this word as a tool. All the occurrences of the word rejoice in the book of Philippians function like a hinge at the beginning or the end of the section in which it appears. So this is providing a transition to a new section a fresh point of progress of thought. The point of the word rejoice is to signal the readers that he's about to move on to further matters. The subject is changing, but it's not a completely new subject. Notice as verse 1 continues, To write the same things to you is no trouble to me, and it is safe for you. Paul says, I don't find it irksome to return to old topics with you. Indeed, your safety requires it. I told you this 10 years ago when I was in Philippi with you. I just keep saying the same things. I'm I'm like the eagles. I keep singing, but it's the same song. Every church should be the same things, church. We don't want some new thing. We want to teach the same things. He's teaching the same things because he wants to keep the foundation of their faith free from cracks and weaknesses that he has witnessed develop in other churches. And then look at verse 2. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Notice the thrice-repeated phrase, look out. It's a command with an exclamation point. This verse is creatively scathing because Paul actually makes use of alliterated insults. All three titles begin with the letter K, the Greek Kappa, Uh, notice behind me, beware of kunos, beware of kakus, beware of katatome. You see the alliteration? I knew alliteration was biblical. I never had proof, but now I have it. Three rapid-fire, blunt, offensive terms for the enemies of salvation. And they had an official name, Judaizers. Paul apparently heard that they reached Philippi. And their M.O. was always the same. They followed in the wake of Paul and tried to destroy his church plans. So Paul says, look out for the dogs. Now you dog lovers, and we've got a lot of them, you dog lovers will not like this verse. Now you cat people will be like, yeah, that's right. Dogs are terrible. Look out for them. And then you ask me, does the Bible say anything about cats? No. Why not? Because they don't matter. <laughs> You you dog parents may want to debate Paul here. How how could Paul, not like my dog Max, wagging his tail and chasing a Frisbee? If he ever met my Bella, he would not use the word dog as an insult. Well, there's a big difference between a 21st century dog and a 1st century dog. If if a 1st century dog ran up to a 21st century dog, he would roll over and start laughing. And and if they could talk, which many of you think they can, I've witnessed you talking to your dogs like a human being. But if, if they could talk, then a first century dog would say of our 21st century dogs, man, they might as well be cats. First century dogs didn't chase Frisbees. They chased children and tried to eat them. They were feral dogs, loud, filthy, dangerous. Paul never looked at a dog and thought, oh, how cute. Look at that little poodle! No, he thought, "How disgusting. What vermin! And now, confession time, I still view dogs this way. I, I was born at a due time. I, my dogology proves it. I should have been in the first century. I never see dogs as cute or cuddly. I try to have a few dog lovers on staff to balance me out. My mom can't stand it. She wonders where she went wrong with me. It's still her greatest failure in life, that I don't like animals. 1st century Philippians didn't have pets. Dogs were coyote-like scavengers who roamed in packs and fed on roadkill and in the town garbage heaps. They were vivid images of the unclean. And if you ask them, give me an animal more disgusting than a dog, they couldn't give you one. In the Old Testament, a dog came to represent all that was unclean and filthy. The term dog was used as a derogatory term for someone evil and dangerous. Isaiah the prophet wrote that false prophets were greedy, unsatisfied dogs. So in Paul's dictionary, a dog is someone who will harm you spiritually. You are simply their next victim as they continue to feed their own appetites and desires and evil intentions. And there is a bit of irony here. Because the Judaizers would refer to Gentiles as dogs. And Paul is inverting the language. He reversed it. You insiders are actually outsiders. Now the outsiders, the former dogs, are calling the insiders dogs. These Judaizers advocated for keeping a kosher diet. And Paul portrays them as feasting on pollution. Twenty years ago... The Baja men released a summer anthem. Any, anyone know what it was? First service got it in like 30 seconds. No, it wasn't even 30 seconds. There we go. Yes. Who let the dogs out? We're still singing that same song this morning. Who let the dogs out? Answer, the evil one. These are Satan's missionaries. Satan's hounds. Satan desires to keep you from knowing Christ, so he dispatches his Green Berets, his Navy SEALs, his Marines. The devil wants to destroy people's confidence in Christ's sufficient work. And he would like nothing more than to have people believe in a false gospel. So beware of dogs, dogs who chew up the gospel. Like physical dogs, there are all sorts of spiritual dogs. Prosperity dogs, self-help dogs, dogs that do tricks and can draw a crowd. Look out for dogs. Also look out for evildoers. Their speech may be clever, but their lips are unclean. And their mission, don't don't allow your heart to to creep toward them. Their mission isn't heroic, but hellish. In the anti-controversialist atmosphere of our churches today, we need to speak out strongly against dogs. And evildoers. Evildoers. That would have been terribly offensive to these Jewish leaders. You know why? Because they prided themselves in doing righteous deeds. And living righteous lives. Though they claimed to be doers of the law, they were actually doers of evil. Summary. Beware of the dogs, they will spiritually harm you. Beware of the evildoers, they will spiritually mislead you. One more, Paul writes, beware of those who mutilate the flesh. Now keep in mind, Paul isn't talking about three different groups of people. He's talking about the same group, giving them different names. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. How do you mutilate the flesh? Well, Paul is speaking of circumcision. Basically, these people were Jewish Christians, at least they claimed to be Christians, But their practice was to go into Paul's churches where the Gentiles were coming to faith in Christ. And they would start telling all the Gentiles all the things they needed to do in order to become Christians. We read about them in Acts 15. They were saying, unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And their beef is not that the Gentiles are becoming Christians. It's that they are not first becoming Jews. They were not saying circumcision is a post-conversion experience, but a pre-conversion experience. In order to become a member of their church, you had to have this surgery. Or if math is your thing, in order to be added to the church, something from you needs to be subtracted. Now, I imagine that hurt the attendance of the new membership class. (laughs) The doctors in the hospital asked me with, with our boys if I wanted to see them get circumcised. And I said, are you crazy? (laughs) No, I don't want to see that. You want me to pass out on the floor? But since this operation is still performed on infant boys, many of you know the physical details of the procedure itself. Few, however, understand why the rite has spiritual significance for the Jews and why it became a bone of contention in the early church. So let me give you a history of circumcision. The best textbook on this is the Bible. Genesis 17 records the institution of this rite. Circumcision was essential for the Jewish people, beginning with Abraham. And it was a distinguishing mark of God's covenant. God protected his people in a time of primitive hygiene. Circumcision protected them, but it also set them apart from other people. None of the other nations were doing that. But it was also more than that. It was a glimpse of the gospel. Prefiguring what Christ will do. The shedding of blood. Also, that which was unclean, cut. It was cut and thrown away, symbolizing removing of the corruptness of your sin. Circumcision was intended by God to graphically illustrate man's depravity. And you may be thinking, Kyle, why was it such a big deal to God's people back then, but it's not a big deal to them now? When Christ came... Circumcision was no longer required. When the substance arrives, the shadow disappears. Christ fulfilled circumcision. He was circumcised, if you would, in your place, on your behalf. Paul now says, if you're telling people they need to be circumcised in order to be right with God, you are mutilators. And this word, it's the same word used of the false prophets of Baal in 1 Kings 18 who would cut their flesh and mutilate their bodies in order to gain the attention of their false god. And this is shocking language here. Paul is effectively saying that physical circumcision was as spiritually meaningless as the ritual mutilation of pagan religions. Now, do you have to be circumcised today? Do men have to be circumcised today? No. This was a picture. Now we have the reality. There was spiritual significance for it back then. Now it's not. In Australia, 26% of men are circumcised. In Cambodia, 3.5. In United States, 71. In Indonesia, 92%. Circumcision is inward, not outward. We've been cleansed to our inner core, not by some surgery but by the sacrifice of our Savior. In Jesus, you're circumcised without hands. And that's that's good news. For men and women, you're circumcised without hands. That's good news. My faith has found a resting place, not in device or creed. I trust the ever-living one. His wounds for me shall plead. I need no other argument. I need no other plea. I'm adding a verse here. I need no other surgery. It is enough that Jesus died. And that, he died for me. These people didn't need mutilation. They needed regeneration. They brought a Jesus plus theology. Jesus plus circumcision will save you. That's what they said. Now, how many of you have ever heard a preacher say that today? You went to a church and they said, hey, you want to be saved? You need Jesus and you need circumcision. I've Never heard that. No one is going around saying that today. But there are people who do add to Christ. Christ plus baptism. The denominational church that the Duck Dynasty group is associated with teaches this. And I know, I know we all like them because of those manly beards. And they are on point. Let me just say, I like them. And I don't know if they believe that. But the dom- denominational church they're associated with, Christ plus baptism. Jesus plus Sabbath worship, some Seventh-day Adventist. Jesus plus abstaining from electricity, some Amish and Mennonite. Christ plus speaking in tongues, some Pentecostals. Christ plus membership into our sect, Mormons. Well, well we've gone through the, the ritualistic purity exercise. No, 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 you're dogs. Knife-happy circumcisers. And this passage stands as a warning to all who think they can have peace with God without submitting to the Christian gospel. Jesus plus theology teaches that God will never be pleased with you unless your hand accomplishes something that can be added to the cross of his son. Christ is not gained by ecclesiastical ceremony. You lose the gospel by adding to it. It's not Jesus plus your good works, whatever your own version of good works is. It's Christ and Christ alone. And my non-Christian friends, you must be saved. People often say you need to be saved from your sins. And I guess that's true, but, but, but in reality, reality, you need to be saved from the wrath of God. He will pour His wrath on all those who are not clothed in His Son. But Christ shields Christians from the wrath because he took the wrath deserved for their sins on the cross. The dogs will spiritually harm you. The evil workers will spiritually mislead you. And these ceremonialists will spiritually burden you. Movement number two. I want to identify marks of those who possess salvation. Notice verse 3. Paul says, For we are the circumcision... These Judaizers didn't call themselves the mutilators. They actually called themselves the circumcision. And Paul now jacks their word. He says, you don't deserve to be called the circumcision. That's our word. You deserve to be called mutilators. And mutilator is an extraordinarily harsh language. The language is typical of a prophet whose message is so urgent that its form is designed to shake the hearers out of complacency. And in fact, catch this, the word mutilate, (catatome) is a sarcastic play on the word of circumcision, peritome. Catatome, peritome, catatome, peritome. Paul's a poet, and he didn't even know it. <laughs> Paul takes the Judaizers' greatest source of pride and interprets it as the surest sign that they have no share among God's people. So there are three marks here. We'll go through them quickly. The first mark, that's probably not true we'll go through them uh, the first mark mark number one true Christians possess the spirit verse three says those who worship by the spirit of God the, S- the spirit of God performed on you that heart transformation to which the physical rite of circumcision pointed the Holy Spirit did circumcision on your heart mark number one true Christians possess the spirit mark number two True Christians, glory in Christ Jesus. That's the next phrase. The word glory means to boast. And churches can be known for all sorts of things. But let us be known for boasting in Christ. Not boasting in buildings or boasting in bands or boasting in the number of bodies, but boasting in Christ. The first two marks are positive, but the third mark is negative. Mark number three, put no confidence in the flesh. Word for word from the end of verse three. Verse four, he says, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. This is what Paul says. Paul says, You wanna brag? You wanna brag? I can brag even more. Paul is mock boasting. If you miss this, you're gonna misunderstand the next like five verses. He is mock boasting. He's calling these religious leaders out to a showdown of religious credentials. He's throwing down the gauntlet. Top this if you can. I'm a dog among dogs. And he rattles off seven things that would have won blue ribbon prizes. And you don't get this as much in the English, but in the original language, this this is Greek trash talking. This is Paul talking smack. And there are seven sections in his stellar resume. I'm not going to put them all on the screen, screen, but you may want to write them down. The first one is this, don't put your confidence in a ritual. I get this from verse 5 where he says, circumcised on the eighth day. Now Paul, Paul's legit. Paul's an eight-dayer, an insider from birth. His circumcision was done in a first-class way. He's not a convert from some pagan nation who had to endure adult circumcision, Paul went through this famous Jewish ritual, but he considered it of no advantage. And I'm telling you, put no confidence in spiritual rituals. Baptized as an infant, praying through beads, singing in Nashville, Jesus take the wheel. These experiences aren't grounds for spiritual confidence. Put no confidence in a ritual, number one. Put no confidence in your ethnicity, number two. He says in verse 5, of the people of Israel. Paul was a physical descendant of Abraham. Paul's heritage radiated insider pride. Paul is stressing the absolute purity of his Jewish pedigree. Comparison, it would be like someone in America who tells you that they are descendant of one of the early pilgrims. Or related in some way to some other famous or wealthy family. I come from a Washington or a Kennedy or the Rockefellers or the Sharons. <laughs> Number three, put no confidence in your rank. Paul lays out his rank here of the tribe of Benjamin. The tribe of Benjamin was an extremely significant tribe. Only two tribes didn't rebel. Benjamin was one. It was the tribe of Benjamin that gave the nation of Israel its first king. He's from the tribe where there's a kind of upper echelon mentality. He was at the pinnacle of Jewish social life. And here's how that lands on us. Don't put confidence in your rank. Here's how that lands on us. Military officers go to hell. CEOs go to hell. Presidents and dictators go to hell. Engineers, data scientists go to hell. You better not be thinking your rank helps you with God. Because it doesn't. Mark number four. Don't put your confidence in your tradition. Paul says, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. This this speaks of language and culture. Paul was brought up speaking Hebrew. Memorizing thousands of lines of Hebrew scripture and tradition. And his parents made sure that he had the best education in Jerusalem under Rabbi Gamaliel. So it, it, it would be like having Albert Einstein as your personal tutor in science. Or Derek Jeter as your personal baseball trainer. Or Hulk Hogan as your body trainer. Or Kyle Sharon as your dance instructor. It's the best of the best. Paul was, was not simply one of these Hellenistic Jews. Ugh. He was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. Number five, don't put your confidence in your rule-keeping. Rule-keeping. Paul says, as to the law, a Pharisee. Notice how I said that? Because many of us say the word like, a Pharisee. I say like, a Pharisee. Many of us who have read the New Testament have a negative impression of Pharisees. We always think of them as hypocritical which in many ways they were, and Jesus exposed them. But we've got to realize in this day, Pharisees were extremely well-respected. Phariseeism was a lay movement that had its beginnings when the Jews returned from exile, and the movement solidified during the Maccabean times. And by the first century, the Pharisees were the most impressive and respected group in Israel. They codified and expanded and itemized the law of Moses into 365 negative commandments. And 250 positive commandments. They love them some rules. They loved rules. Their name comes from an Aramaic term denoting the separated ones. And they bragged about being separated. According to Josephus, this ancient historian whose father was actually a contemporary with Paul, Josephus said they were an elite denomination consisting of 6,000 men. So Paul's in rare company. Frankly, there weren't many Jewish men willing to live this kind of dedicated life. But among them, Paul out-Phariseed all the other Pharisees. Paul adopted a Pharisaical lifestyle. Switch your brain. Don't view that as a bad thing. View that as like a very moral thing. Paul adopted a Pharisaical lifestyle. He belonged to a morally superior group of Jews. And, friends, you will meet people today who think that salvation comes by being a moral person. I follow the rules, I do things right. Morality may save you from jail, but only Jesus can save you from hell. Now, to be clear, I'm not encouraging rule breaking, I'm simply saying rule keeping will never get you to Christ. Number six, don't put your confidence in your sincerity. Paul says, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. Before Paul came to faith in Christ, he would have been called in today's vernacular a Jewish extremist, willing to put to death anyone who abandoned the Jewish faith and follow that Jewish carpenter. Luke chronicles this in Acts, and most notably Paul's presence in the gruesome stoning of Stephen. This is Paul B.C., Paul before Christ. Then he met Christ. This is like a Muslim jihadist today who trusts in Jesus Christ as a Savior and then becomes a testimony of the gospel back to his own people, which, is, which by the way, is happening today by the hundreds. Now, how many of you have ever heard someone say, well, they are, I know they don't agree exactly, but they're very sincere. It takes more than sincerity. Paul was sincerely zealous about the wrong things. You can pick up a football and run in the wrong direction. You can take a basketball and score in the wrong hoop. It happened to me in high school. It's horrible. High school. A guy after the first service said, I thought you were going to say elementary school. I said, shut up. Get out of it." It was high school. Sincerity doesn't atone for sins. Jesus does. Number seven. Don't put your confidence in rags. Don't put your confidence in rags. Paul says, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. So when I say rags, I'm referring to his righteousness. P- Paul quips here. I know you guys think I'm coming at you, you Judaizers, think I'm coming at you out of sour grapes, but I'm not coming at you from the outside. I tried to seek righteousness by what I did as well, I mistook my rags for robes. Paul's saying, listen, if being good, decent, diligent, devout, law-abiding, dedicated to what you believe in, if that's what it takes to get into heaven, then I would be going to heaven writing first class. But it doesn't cut it. What makes you a Christian is not just repenting of your sins, but repenting of your righteousness, which is what Paul is doing here. He trades his rags, all of his righteousness He trades his rags for Christ's robe. You know you're naked, right? You instinctively, you're instinctively trying to cover your nakedness. The human spirit is always trying to justify itself, to barter with God, to negotiate a self-salvation over a Christ salvation. And what do we do with these seven things? D.A. Carson the Canadian theologian, one of my favorites. By the way, Canada has produced a lot of great things. My wife, Sarah, number one. Uh, Tim Horton's coffee, number two. Uh, my mother-in-law, who's visiting this Sunday on the front row, uh, number three. At, no, you're ahead, of, you're ahead of Tim Horton's. Number two. Uh, Canada's produced a lot of good things. Uh, my father-in-law, no, no, I'll just stop it right there at three. Da, Don Carson, this Canadian theologian, said, most I suspect, will not be greatly tempted to boast about their Jewish ancestry and ancient rites of race and religious heritage. But we may be tempted to brag about still less important things. Our wealth, our status, our education, our emotional stability, our families, our business success, our denominational alignments, or even about which version of the Bible we use. Be careful of people like that. They tend to regard everyone who is outside of their little group as somehow inferior. Whatever you think is working for you could very well be working against you. Movement number three. I want to teach you the doctrine of salvation. I'm saying this because Paul said it to this church. Verse 7. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Paul says the very credentials that these people are waving around as something special, I am tearing up and throwing out with the trash. Paul is actually using simple accounting terms here. You spreadsheet people will love this. He's creating a profit and loss column. Everything I was putting in the prophet column, those seven privileges, I began to realize that they were actually in the lost column. John Bunyan said, The holiest prayer I've ever prayed has enough sin in it to condemn the whole world. Is that how you view your good performance? Paul thought before he met Christ that he was spiritually wealthy, but he was spiritually bankrupt. His assets were actually liabilities. Verses 8 through 11. Verses 8 through 11 are one sentence in the Greek and are theologically packed. And I can't, un- I can't unpack everything, but I'll get the majority of it. Verse 8. Indeed, I count everything as loss. Now let's stop there. What, what would Paul have lost? What did he lose following Christ? He lost friends, intellectual peers. His home, his security, his status. His family would have had a funeral for him. He says, the things that used to drive me now have no influence or control over me. They have nothing for me anymore. Status and privilege, I gave it all up. And this is crazy. He had no regrets. John Calvin noted that when people battling a storm, picture this, when people battling a storm at sea cast their personal belongings overboard to lighten the ship, they wail afterward at the loss. But Paul didn't do that. He did not look back. There was no hidden longing. Why? Because he will gain Christ. The verse says, Because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ i trash the flesh and i treasure the savior paul mentions christ by name or pronoun 9 times in 5 verses knowing christ is his supreme ambition and and i wouldn't say what i'm about to say to most churches but i'm going to say it to you i'm going to say it to us Read the Puritans. Talk about the order of salvation. Go deep into systematic theology. But never forget the purpose. The purpose is to know God. And when you know God, everything else is rubbish. Sometimes the translators try to be more gentle than God himself. They will not say what this word is really saying. They give you an edited for TV translation... Tame it down. This is the Greek word, skubala. Not scooby-doo. Skubala. It's a crass word. And it's translated in the King Jimmy as dung. It's a crude expletive by first century standards. It's a vulgar word. It's almost embarrassing because basically what Paul is saying is, I consider all my righteousness, all these things I've accomplished as excrement. A dirty diaper. You you dog people. Uh, What your dog is leaving in the yard, a steaming pile, that's your righteousness. And Paul is saying, you Judaizers are bragging about this? Saying my pile is bigger than your pile? That's not a win. That is not a win. (laughs) Paul wants to strike us with the worthlessness of life apart from Jesus. You can have the bread of life that will eternally satisfy you. Are you going to have a pile of dung? Paul says, you know my three degrees from Harvard? My Congressional Medal of Honor? Two Nobel Prizes? They're all a steaming pile. Silver calls verses 9 through 11 the essence of Pauline theology. It would take me about 30 minutes to fully unpack this, so I'm going I'm to give it to you on a chart. And um, you guys know my charts really change your life, and so here's what we're doing. There are three tenses of salvation. So the doctrine of salvation. Three tenses of salvation. There's a past tense, a present tense, and a future tense. Verse 9, verse 10, and verse 11. The past tense, you are saved from the penalty of sin. The present tense, you are saved from the power of sin. You're increasingly being able to say no to sin and yes to righteousness. Then future tense, you're saved from the presence of sin. One day, you'll, you'll lay down this sinful body. And you'll never, you'll never have sinful urges again. How powerful is that? That's when salvation is complete. All right, So we call salvation in the past tense justification. It's a done deal. I'm saved and I don't doubt it. I have that assurance. We call justification in the present tense sanctification. God is working on us. He's maturing us. Then we call salvation in the future glorification. We will have glorified bodies, glorified desires. So you have been saved. You are being saved. You will be saved. Now, let me just hit for a moment on on justification. I can't deal with them all, but I I do want to deal with justification. Look at verse 9. And be found in Christ, not having a righteousness of my own, that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. Now, this is what theologians call imputation. It means to put on someone's account. Paul is just like all of you and me, needing someone else's righteousness in order to be justified before God. You see, here's the problem. Only righteous people are going to heaven, yet none of us are righteous. Therefore, we need another source of righteousness, something from outside of ourselves. We need an alien righteousness. To break this down further, notice how Paul quickly makes two important points. First, justification is a gift from God. Paul says that righteousness comes from God. We can't earn it. We don't deserve it. God in infinite grace gave his only son to live and die for law-breaking people that they may be saved. If, If you deserve it, it isn't grace. If you can earn it, it isn't grace. If you can repay it back, it isn't grace. Secondly, justification is received by faith. Faith. Now, now, some people like to define justification like this. Just as if I never sinned. Just as if I would never sinned. But we should add to that that it's more than this. It's just as if I've always obeyed. For we haven't gone from negative to neutral. We've gone from negative to positive. We haven't just received forgiveness. We've received the perfect Righteousness of Christ. That is justification. Sanctification is found in verse 10. I can't get... Let me, let me land this plane. Or maybe I should say as Paul did, finally. Sound <laughs> time for the second half of the book. Dorothy Sayers tells a story about a legalistic missionary who went to a headhunting tribe and told the chief, if you become a Christian... You can't cut heads off your enemies anymore. You can't defeat other chiefs and take their wives as your own. You can't pillage villages and rape women. The chief looked her straight in the eye and said, Then I'm already a Christian. I am 70 years old. I cannot rape women anymore or defeat other chiefs. The main problem with this missionary is the main problem addressed in this text Tony Morita says, this text really speaks about the problem of legalism. That is the temptation to derive your justification before God, your acceptance by God, by your own religious effort. We're reminded here that you can't earn salvation. It is a gift to be received. Legalism is self-atonement. It's a self-salvation project that only leads to pride or despair. And we must resist the gospel of human achievement. It steals your joy by suggesting that God's love and favor have to be earned. And you you better do more. And you better be better. It's a do-it-yourself salvation. But that is not what we find in this text. And that is not what we find at the cross of Christ. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. Grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. Thank you for listening to this resource of Faith Family Church. We gather on Sundays at 495 Hugh Hunter Road in Oak Grove, Kentucky, and are a short drive from Fort Campbell and Hopkinsville, Kentucky, as well as Clarksville, Tennessee. For more information, visit our website, myfaithfamilychurch.com.